Hello and welcome to GCAF Online. It's great to have you here. Worship God with us. Could you turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20? Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So we are now in, in uh, the continuation of the family treatment series that we have in the chapter 18. So we began with chapter 18 with the, uh, the disciples arguing that who was the greatest among them. And here comes Jesus preaching to them this sermon and how they should treat each other. And so we, we said that because Jesus sees us as all, all, all disciples, every believer of Jesus Christ, God sees them as His precious little children and treats them so special, so precious that He would try to find them every time they would go missing. Jesus tells His family that you guys, you are family, you should treat each other in a special way. And so now we are week three in the family treatment, and I'd like to, talk, I'd like to call this sermon Discipline. In the family. And what I, what I mean about discipline is that this includes correction, this includes the, the punishment, this includes the education that is involved in the training and the discipline of a person. And, and, and discipline may be given by parents, it may be given by fellow Christians, and it might be even be given by God. And so, Verse 15 starts with this, if your brother sins. You see, when, when we have been adopted into God's household, God's family, He made us His children, and we were made to have committed relationships, just as God the Father is committed to love us, committed to chase after us, committed to treasure and value us, He says, brothers and sisters ought to have this commitment as well in the relationship. So when we say we are in a church family, and this is uh, verse, chapter 18, the idea here of the gathered family is in the idea of a local church that we understand it today. See, this is not the abstract church that is the whole world. This is when children of God Disciples, fellow disciples, congregate in one local area, a local church. This is the idea of the relationship that we ought here now in this local community that we have be so committed that we would commit even to the discipline of each other. So that's, that's our context here. When I say discipline in the church family, what I mean by that is discipline in the local church family. And, and now, when we say we commit to God's family, when we commit to follow God and in His family, we also commit to His discipline, the church discipline. And so, when I say in the church discipline, I have three points for that, three principles to live by every time we carry out the church discipline for each other. Number one, let love be our motive every time. And so here we have, we have seen that God has a special treatment that He reserves 
only for family. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. God says that He only disciplines those who He considers to be His family, to be His children. He doesn't discipline the, the people who, that He doesn't consider His children. And that's in verse 8. If you are not disciplined, and everybody should undergo discipline, then you are actually illegitimate children of God and not true sons. For, 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 so for God to ignore you, for God not to discipline you, then it shows that God has not considered you to be His family. So God reserves a special treatment only for family. Discipline is for family only. The family treatment that we now have for each other is the same. Because for, for parents, he says this in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod. Parents, if you don't discipline your children, your sons, your daughter, you're not loving him. If you, are, if you love your children, you will not spare the rod. You will, you will discipline. You will be careful to discipline him or her. And Proverbs 23, 13 to 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod, and there was a tremendous benefit for him. You will save his soul from death. So it is a loving act from parents. I don't want you to, to die. I, I want to spare you. I want to teach you to walk what, in the right way. So the family that loves each other will discipline each other. And in Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son while there is still hope and do not desire his death. So even here you see then there is a certain time element. There is a certain urgency when we discipline others in the family because you only have a certain window in order for you to do that. By delaying, by saying, oh, I'll do that tomorrow or maybe next time, you might miss the opportunity to save your brother or your sister. So, that's for parent to children. Now, Matthew 18 is not talking about parent to children discipline. Matthew 18 is talking about a fellow Christian, a fellow disciple to another disciple in a local church gathering, a, ch a church family that we commit to discipline each other. That's the context that, that this sermon is, right? Jesus is preaching to his disciples. You are all my children. You're all special and equal to me. You have to practice this as a family. Discipline each other. And so the Bible is full of lang the language of discipline for family. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, For those who are in the church leaders in the church, and they would persist in sinning even after you've rebuked them, even after you've corrected them, even after you've done everything you can. 1 Timothy 5.20 tells us, rebuke them in the presence of every family member, meaning rebuke them publicly now this time, so that everybody might realize sin is serious and they would fear. Luke 17.3 says that we should pay attention even to ourselves because if we see a brother or a sister sin, we have to rebuke them. And if they repent, we've got to forgive them. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division in the local family, this person would go around saying nasty things, he would, he would uh, make one person uh, go against the other. He would be creating all these uh, slanders, gossips, and all. The church, what the local family should do is 
to warn this person and say, hey, what you're doing is not good. You're making us stumble. You're making us sin. You're making us divided, right? And you warn them, and, and you, you, you have to warn them again. And, and if they refuse to listen, again, la- the language of discipline here is this. Cut off ties with them. Have nothing to do with them anymore. And so here in Matthew 18, verse 15, you see that in the family, if your brother, if your sister in Christ sins, so the issue here that you now have to go and and discipline the erring brother, the erring sister, is when he's in his life showing the fruits of sin. When you've seen and noticed something amiss in his life, an inconsistency that this guy is not uh, glorifying and honoring God. He's not obeying. He's sinning here. So you've got to go and show him his faults, his sin. So the family of God has to have this deep commitment, just as if you remember last week, the shepherd, the heart of God, whose deep commitment is that when you wander away, when you sin, he'll go chase after you. Now he says, that's what you do as well to the family. If you see each other, a fellow brother or a fellow sister who's starting to wander away, you have got to be the one to go chase that brother as well. So the idea here is that we are a family and we are not a bunch of strangers. You see, you could be on a tour bus. We could all take a ride on a bus and we could spend one month, two months to- touring over all over the Philippines. And, and we'd, we'd, we'd eat together, we'd, we'd go to the same stop, bus stops, we'd go and watch the same things. We'd have all of these common experiences, but we could still remain strangers. Because if I'm just in a tour bus, if I'm just on a tour, I'm, I'm not after, I don't look at you as family. I could be sitting next to you for five hours on the bus or on the plane, and if I just say, if I just say we're not family, all the time that we've spent together, doing things together, sharing experiences together, you would still be, at the end of the day, nothing to me, just a stranger, and I have no concern for you. But we're not called to be tour bus tourists as Christians. In the family, we are called to be on a tour of duty. That's a military language there, that a tour of duty is when a soldier, what a soldier does to spend time in combat, in a hostile environment, the, the soldier is sent with a group of men and women. As a unit, they go and have this tour, and, and they cannot afford to be strangers in this hostile environment. They're in the middle of a war. They have nowhere else to go and no one else to trust to but this unit, this family that they have. And that's the idea of us being family, a family of God. We've got no one else in this world. We, have, we are the, one, the family of God. These are the only ones we have, the only brother, the only sister we have. Every person in God's family is precious. It cannot be replaced. And, and we would suffer and, and suffer a loss if, if something would have happened to him or her. And so the idea here of our commitment so deep we can't afford to just look at each other as, you know, we're just a bunch of tourists here enjoying our time until we are taken into heaven. We are in war. We are in a foreign country. We are not citizens of this world only. We are citizens of heaven. We are a family, a household of God. These brothers and sisters are the only ones I have. We have to, I have to be fully committed to them, to live life with them, to journey with them. And so, What's been stopping you from committing to the family of God? What's been stopping you from committing to the family discipline? 
We have all these reasons. We have, we have reasons for not going to a fellow brother or a fellow sister when we see something off with his life, when we see that he's going off tangent and he's going into sin. See, if I don't love you, if I would only say I love God, but I don't love you as brother, I don't love you as a family, I'm not motivated to go after you. All the reasons in the world not to get, get involved goes out of the window, goes out of our heads and out of our considerations once we're talking about family here. Just talk to a dad. Just talk to a mom who has a child, a precious child. And the precious child is, is going towards the edge of a cliff. There is no reason. There is no schedule that is too busy. There is no reason that is so, well, it's not my personality to, you know, go to this person and say, brother, sister, you're sinning. It's not, it's not, it's not me. Oh, I have all these concerns. And, and so maybe some, somebody else will get involved. Maybe somebody else will do it for me. All of that goes out of the window when you now see each other as precious family members and you're so involved, you're so committed that whenever you see somebody in danger, man, you're, you would be the first one. Nobody has to convince you. Nobody has to force you to be there to save that person from the danger. So when we're talking discipline, in the idea of the idea that it is to correct, Bible tells us, chapter 18 tells us it is to show this brother, this sister, his sin, his fault. And the idea here of discipline, it is to educate. The idea is you are to point out to him his sin. And so when you're showing him, that's that's the, the word there that, that Matthew 18. 15 tells us, show him his fault. When you see a brother's sin, show him. That word, elencho, is not a gentle action word. Luke 3.19 tells us it is used as a rebuke when John the Baptist rebukes King Herod about his sexual immorality. This is the word that is used. Elencho, Right? I'm rebuking you from what you're, what you're doing in your life. John 3.20, the idea here is to expose something. It's not a gentle word. It's exposing a hidden sin. John 16.8 says, it is the word used to convict a person of wrongdoing. And you're saying, hey, what you're doing, this is wrong. That's exposing. That's convicting. Ephesians 5.11 says, you are exposing fruitless deeds of darkness. So that's the idea here. And there's, sometimes it, it, it can't be gentle. It has to be blunt. It has to be upfront. You can't say, you can't beat around the bush. You know, when the birds go to the flowers, and you, you use all of the euphemisms and all the words that you could, flowery words. No, sometimes you have to be blunt. You have to say, brother, sister, that life, what you're doing, that's wrong in the eyes of God. And the, 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 the motive there is because I love you. I have to say this to you. And so, let love be your motivation when it comes to exposing sin, going to that person to show him the error of his ways. Second point, let Restoration be your goal. See, let, let the goal of church discipline be our committed love to save a fellow brother or sister. Because that's the idea here. When you go to him and show him his faults, expose his sin, if he listens to you, if he listens to the truth of God, and repents, what does 
Verse 15 say, you have won him. And to win him is the goal, to save him. It, it, it shows that there's, we have our, we're concerned that it's not, I'm, not, I'm not here to feel self-righteous. I'm not here to point out your sin so that I might feel good about me not doing what you're doing. I'm here because by pointing out to you your sin, I love you so much that this, if you would listen to God, you would have been won. An idea here is that the win suggests that the person was in danger of being lost. Remember last week when the 99 sheep was counted and they were all there? One was missing. One was lost. The person here who's now sinning and notice, is noticed by his fellow brothers and sisters starting to wander away. That's the danger. You're starting to wander away. So if a, a fellow disciple, fellow brother would say, hey, come back, come back, and this person would listen, he would have been one and would not get lost. So it's so key that if we love each other, if we notice somebody who's starting to wander away, don't ignore, don't say, other, that's other people's job. It is you. It's a very personal pronoun there. It's you. It, it's, it doesn't have, it's, it's not just the pastor's job. It's not just wider group leader's job. It's for every disciple of God. If you see somebody, if you notice a fellow family member who's sinning, you've got to be the one to love him enough to confront him. And, and so, what does, that's our goal, right? And why do we need that? Because we have a desperate need. We need to be reminded again and again by fellow brothers and sisters because we are in desperate need of each other. We, as a family, have to stick together. The family has to help each other because we have a history of forgetting God. We easily forget. Jeremiah talks about that, that there, we, we have a tendency to deceive ourselves. Sin is all about deceiving our hearts, our, our, ourselves, convincing ourselves that what we're doing is okay, can be justified, and we can convince ourselves so much that we begin to believe in our own lies. And, and Jeremiah asks uh, questions like this. If you're a woman and you're getting married, will you ever forget your wedding dress? Will you ever forget your wedding rings and all the, uh, the, the things, the symbols that it has to do with uh, your marriage? And the answer, of course, is no. See, it's unthinkable for a, for a lady uh, who's going to get married and he, she forgets to wear her wedding dress. She forgets the wedding ring. That's unthinkable, Right? But God says this in Jeremiah. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So many times. We all have a very convenient memory loss. We can choose to forget many things at our own convenience. So there's an example there. It says, you know, how many times have you forgotten to do something that you were asked to do? And I can, I can bet you that it ha it's more than one. It's a lot of times. But did you know that if it comes to things that you really like and you really love, have you noticed that you don't forget them? Nobody has to tell me that we have a basketball game on Sunday afternoon before this COVID thing arose, right? Or on Saturday mornings. Nobody had to remind me. I love basketball so much that I remind myself. See, I'd, I'd, I'd go early in the morning just to play basketball. Nobody has to remind me. And so it, it comes out, John Ortberg says this, it turns out 
that you never forget things at random? You're not, you're not a forgetful person. You only remember what matters to you. So we have a very desperate need to be reminded of the things that we don't see or hold of, of value. And, and so our, our convenient excuses for not doing the right things, for not obeying God, oh, because I forgot, oh, because it, I know, it just shows you what you, val- you really value, that you can easily forget those things because something else has replaced and has become a competing commitment, a competing value in your life. And so, brothers and sisters who would come to me and say, I got to remind you, seems that you have forgotten this. are so precious. We need, we desperately need each other to be reminded. We need each other to be, for, for, for them to expose my intentional forgetfulness in life if I am disobeying God and dishonoring God already. See, that's, that's what it means when I forget God. When I would listen to His Word, James 1 tells me, if I just listen to God's Word, if I, li- I read His Word, but I don't do it, I forget. I'm actually forgetting God. And James 4 tells me that, you know, whoever knows the right thing to do, but fails to do it, doesn't matter what excuse you give. Doesn't matter what justification you say, I forgot. Oh, I, I intended to do it tomorrow. No, you have sinned. And we need brothers and sisters who would love us and com- are committed to us so deeply and totally that they would come and say, Hey, you're sinning. Listen, come back. We desperately need each other. Otherwise, we would, we would repeat the same mistake of King David. King David, he somehow forgot that murder was sin, that adultery was sin, that it dishonored God. He somehow forgot that his close friend, a loyal soldier of his, a mighty man who would, has done so many things for the kingdom, for him and for many people, he would con- conveniently forgot, forget that relationship and have him killed. It took a friend. It took a committed person, a person who was totally committed to God who became a reminder for David. How else can a Christian leader forget to forgive and let go of grudges while at the same time the Christian leader is ministering for people and say, hey, you know what God tells us? We should forgive. And he has somehow conveniently forgotten to do the same thing in his life. It would take a committed brother or a sister of the Lord to go to this Christian leader and say, you are living contrary now to God's word. Because, you know, that's what you and I do with our favorite sins. The sins that we have a hard time letting go. The sins that we always seem to go back to again and again. We have a tendency to try to forget God. To try to forget His Word. Yeah, we know that sin and still conveniently do it. We need to be exposed. We need a brother or a sister to love us and to tell us that's, not, that's wrong. Repent, brother. Repent, sister. Second way that we, could, that we show our desperate need for each other is because we each have blind spots. See, the wonderful blessing of having a committed family who would love you enough to speak the truth with love to you is that you, they get to see things that you don't. This happened to me recently. That uh, a few weeks ago, I was doing something that I really thought about. I said, okay, I got all the bases covered. This is, I have to deal with a, a sin in another person's life. So I said, okay, I've got to be careful that I don't sin myself. And so I tried to 
cover every angle I could. And yet, when I asked for advice from fellow brothers of mine, they loved me enough and they had the wisdom to show to me, hey, this is something that is now unnecessary. This is something that, is, that could cause somebody to stumble unnecessarily. And if you would insist on this right of yours, you would be sinning. You see, I thought I had it all covered. I thought I had all it figured out. I, th- I thought I was, I was trying to obey God and, and do what is right, and yet I still missed a few details. And so having the blessing of brothers who are wise in the Lord and loved and committed to the Lord, to tell me that, man, what a blessing. If you're, if you're driving a car, you know all about blind spots. Even if you're just walking, you know that you can't see everything. I can see the back, from behind me here. But if I have a brother who sees and points out in my blind spots, that's blessing. That's something that you and I should treasure. Be committed in, in a local church family. Be committed in a, with a group of brothers and sisters who would journey with you in that manner, who would love you enough and value you enough and cherish you enough that they would say, hey, it's hard for me to do this. It's hard for me to say this, but this is what God says. Now, let's, let's go on. So, by having this in our family, many times, by approaching that brother, that sister, you can settle things between the two of you. And that should be the first guiding principle that we have. Settle it as privately as you can. It's only when it doesn't work, the person not, doesn't listen to you, that you've got to go call for backup. And so that shows you our desperate need, another desperate need, that we need each other, because we only have a, we have a tendency only to focus on the good things instead of the right thing. Ken, Ken Sandy said this, Unfortunately, many churches today don't do formal discipline. They don't follow church discipline until the offense becomes so big, so terrible, that relationships are shattered, patterns get so ingrained and set and hardened that the chances of restoring someone has become so small. What's that? That's delayed obedience, delayed discipline. And, and, and when the church is not committed to each other, that could happen. Because family discipline, church discipline is a command from God. We're commanded by God to do this. So if you know that this is the right thing to do, and if you don't do it, remember what James tells us? We, get, we ourselves are sinning. And so, but what do we do instead? Instead of going to the person and committing to discipline, what do we do? At the last minute, instead of obeying God, we come up with all these excuses. We shrink back from our God-given duty towards each other because of fear. We get so focused on a good thing. Well, I don't want to I'm afraid that if I do that, I'm going to offend you. And they zero in on this good thing. Of course, we don't want to offend people. Of course, we don't want them to feel bad. You know, and that's, that's a good thing, but should never be at the expense of the right thing, which is obeying God first and foremost. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that there is a right way to approach speaking the truth in love. See, you have to confront people. You've got to speak the truth. Do it. In love. But what do we do? We 
come up with all these good reasons not to do it. Oh, maybe he'll, he'll leave the church. Maybe he'll feel bad about me. Maybe our, relation, our friendship will be over, and I don't want that. How, how else can I save him or influence him if I do that? And that's how we normally or many times do it. We don't say anything because we don't want to upset people. We don't want them to feel bad about us. So to that, I'd give you an example from an older brother, an older brother in the faith whose name is John Wesley. John Wesley lived a very disciplined life. He was, a, he was one of the founders of the Methodist movement. And, and this guy's writings, his sermons are so influential. He, he's one of the brothers that we have that have been a tremendous blessing to the church. And so we could see that in his journal, <laughs> it, it, he gives us the impression that all his life, all his ministry, he spent as much time throwing people out of the church and just as much as he would spend preaching them the gospel and inviting them in. So this guy was serious about church discipline and we could probably learn a thing or two about him today. During one of his visits to a, a local church in Bristol, it was said that he purged, he removed 20% of the members there in, their, in that place because they were drunk, drunkards. They were living a sense of being dishonest in their businesses. They were gossipers. They were slanderers. They were arguing in public, suing each other in court, and they were cheating on their taxes. And what does John Wesley do when he visits this local church? He says, you guys... If you don't listen to the Word of God, I'm going to kick you out. <laughs> I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to throw you out if you don't listen to God. And when they did not, John Wesley committed to the discipline and, yes, threw him out, even if it meant 20% of that population of that local church was gone. That's total commitment that you see right there for God and for the people. And later on, we would see in his life that in, in the Methodist group, that you, this was something that he was serious about. But you would see that at the end of his life, John Wesley, when he died, there were one million Christians in the Methodist movement. Today, there's around 30 million Wikipedia says there's 80 million. I, I look at Christianity today, it says 30 million. But you, you take your pick. But still, that movement is well and thriving, but, re, but and the founder was serious on church discipline. John Wesley once wrote to a church leader that was hesitating to implement church discipline. John Wesley was so committed to church discipline because he saw that it was the work of God in a Christian's life. It was what God used to grow a Christian in his faith and in his walk toward God. And so that's why he didn't hesitate. He, he believed in it because he believed that it was God's work. And so we hesitate today. Many Churches hesitate today because the, one of the concerns is this. If we implement church discipline as we find it in Matthew 18, do you know what will happen? And this is a com very common concern. We will have a church split. They will leave the church because we know that they will not be able to take it. They'll get offended. They, they're not going to listen. In fact, they're going to hate me for it and, and they'll leave. Or they'll create an issue that will become divided and all these concerns, right? Let's learn from this older brother again, John Wesley. He writes to a leader who expressed the same concern. And he says to this pastor, 
I require you, I order you to put that leader out or to excommunicate him. Implement Matthew 18 to the full because that person has not been listening, even if he has a leader. And even if he has 20 of a small group of followers with him that would leave together with him, John Wesley writes, the first loss is the best. Better for 40 members to leave than, and to get lost rather than our church discipline to be the one to get lost. He was so convinced that he was doing the right thing in obeying God, that it was the loving thing to do this, that it didn't matter for John Wesley if it meant they would leave because they were offended. He writes to this pastor, do what is right. Fear nothing. Leave the consequences to God. That's why there's a saying here, right? For parents, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Same thing could be applied to the children of God in a local church. If you spare the rod of discipline in a local church, you will spoil the church. That's why in, in verse 17 of Matthew 18, if the, the person that says that he is a Christian refuses to listen, what do you have now? We're com be committed. If he hasn't been convinced by you one-on-one, -on -one, if he hasn't been convinced by you with several witnesses now, then we've got, we've got a last resort, last-ditch effort to save this person. Bring it to the church. Go public now. And so the, public, the, the, the objective of this public gathering, this public announcement and saying that we have a brother and sister who refuses to listen is not to condemn, it's not to judge, it's not to say we're better than this person. It's still in the hope that they may now listen because this is now in front of everybody. The, the issue there that this is just a personal vendetta, this is just a personal conflict between the two, should be gone completely because everybody is in agreement. The local church is in agreement now that this person is in sin, living in sin. And so if the person still refuses to obey God and repent from that, even when it is now so serious like this, that's where we have to commit fully in the church discipline given to us. And we have to cast him out. We have to trust God here. Matthew 18 is Jesus preaching to his disciples that this is what we're supposed to do in his church, in his family. We have to trust in our shepherd that would look for us. Each sheep that would get lost, he would go look for them. We have to trust that this is part of that. This is part of the shepherd loving each sheep and fully commit to church discipline. And so we would say to this person, we're sorry, but by your actions, you refuse to repent. You refuse to trust and believe in God and surrender to His words. So by your fruits, by the actions that you are living in your life, we say now that you are not a Christian. That's the ultimate thing, the ultimate church discipline that we, ha that we have been given by Jesus Himself. We consider this sinning person a Gentile or a tax collector. Notice that that doesn't end our responsibility to this brother or sister. We treat him now as an unbeliever. 
but we still, and we, he is now excluded from church leadership. He is now excluded from church fellowship. But he is welcome to listen to the gospel. He is welcome to listen to the word in the hope that he would realize his loss and repent. It is still motivated church discipline. It's motivated by love. It's still the goal here is to save the person. It's never out of vengeance. It's never out of petty, ill feelings toward each other. It's never made, never be. And so, that leads us to the third principle. Every time we commit to church discipline, let God be our hope. See, the common objections for us not to do this here in GCAF is how can you cast a person out of the church? How can you remove him from church leadership? If you do that, then what hope does he have of being saved? Because we're all sinners here, aren't we? So if you do that, then what, what are we doing? Right? There's also that belief that we never cut off relationships with each other here. We never do that. But then we would not be living in harmony now to what Matthew 18 tells us or in many areas of the Bible tells us. Another common objection would be, you know what? In the name of discipline, of church discipline, many abuses have been done in the past because of that. Many people have been wounded and, and, and been terribly scarred and traumatized by wrong applications of discipline. So we don't do that anymore, right? Because it can always be done in another way, right? There's always a better way than discipline. We don't do that anymore. We just, we'll just love and accept the person. That's another objection that tell you, are you familiar with the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? What does that mean? The idea here is that that expression is this. You don't throw out something that is good because you're trying to get rid of something that is bad. That, that, that's the idea there when you say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What do we mean by that? Just because something bad has happened in the name of church discipline, you don't eliminate church discipline at all. You don't say that all discipline is bad just because some in the, something in the past has happened before done in the name of church discipline was wrong. That would be, if you're carrying the same logic, you would say, well, we, I've seen many bad marriages out there, so I'm not going to get married. You have just thrown the baby out with the bathwater with that logic because it doesn't mean that you have bad marriages out there, that every marriage is bad. So what do we do? First, we say and we acknowledge that, yes, bad marriages do exist. And we now go back to God's Word and we should love as a husband should and we should love as a wife should and obey Him in all things so that we don't do the same mistakes as others. And the same thing with church discipline. We acknowledge that many things have been done in the past that have been abusive and wrong in church discipline. But that doesn't mean that we stop it. We have to believe that it is God-given, that this is what we do and this is the right thing. And so we do our best by listening to God and obeying Him in all things. And there should be a proper way to discipline. That is right. Ephesians 6.4 tells us that parents, there's a proper way to discipline your children. You say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the wrong way to do, to do discipline. There's a right way. And that's what we should do. And that's what we should aim. Right? And so, if you carry out Matthew 18, 15 to 20, go first to the person. One-on-one. -on -one. 
do it, settle it privately if you can. If you don't, then follow the principles. You have to do it in the right spirit. You have to do it that, this, that you are obeying God right now. You're in the side of righteousness. You have to make sure your heart is right. All these things you should follow. Yes, by all means. And yet, you know what? Even if you do all those things, there will still be these objections. There will still be these critics that would say and second-guess everything that has happened. Ah, you didn't do it the right way. You should have done it this way, right? And, and you, you're, you, this, that wasn't the best thing that you did. And so you could second-guess and second-guess. But that's not how you live life. See? Parents. Parent, earthly fathers, earthly mothers. What does what uh, uh, Hebrews 12 tells us? Hebrews 12 tells us this, that human fathers who implement discipline, who try their best to discipline us. What happens in verse 9? Children who grow up with fathers and mothers who have disciplined them would grow up respecting their daddies and mommies. But we see as well that Hebrews 10, it wasn't the perfect discipline. They weren't perfect parents. They screwed up as well while they were disciplining their children while growing up. They didn't do everything in the right way every time. There would be outbursts of anger maybe. There would be times where they're irritable and they've lashed out in the, in the attempt of trying to discipline and train their children. But what does verse 10 tells us? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But we see here, but God disciplines us for our good so that we might live, that we might share in His holiness. Do you know what that, what te that tells us about earthly attempts to discipline? That even if it is sometimes done in a wrong way, in a wrong manner, you know what God says? He is involved. He was involved when your parents disciplined you. And you know what Hebrews 12, 11 says? When you were disciplined at that time, it didn't seem pleasant at all. It was painful. Maybe you didn't appreciate what happened to you when you were disciplined, but later on, as time goes by, what happened there, whether it was perfectly done or imperfectly done, didn't matter. Later on, it produced in you a harvest of righteousness and peace because you have been trained by discipline. But we have organizations who are trying to do that, but at the same time, try to find a way to not do it, try to find a way to circumvent it. And you can see that, you know what? Uh, there was a recent attempt for, in our government to cleanse out the ranks of uh, uh, police officers or government employees. And, and you know what they did is that what they did was they didn't go all the way. They didn't fully commit to cleansing out the ranks. What did they do? They tried to implement a sense of discipline, but they tried to circumvent it as well. And so what happened is this. They would find out that a government employee or a government official was doing something that he was not supposed to. And, and what they would do if they, they were, uh, let's say, in the police officer ranks, is that they would just discipline them by transferring them to another place. And when people saw that, they saw that it was a half-hearted attempt not a total commitment to discipline, what did it do? It didn't 
it did not result in praise towards the government leaders. It invited more disdain. What kind of leadership is that? Was the response. That's not the right thing to do. Was the response. See, in the churches, how does that, how does that look? Where we have a plague, we're, we're plagued with low commitments in the leadership, low commitments in the brothers and sisters in the local family. How does that look of trying to obey Matthew 18 at the same time trying to circumvent it? We have many sins that we are aware of, but we don't deal with them. It has resulted in a local church who are turning a blind eye of what is right, of doing what, is, what God has tell, told us because of many reasons. It has resulted in poor mistreatment. See, the, the person that would now be confronted, there would just be this uh, person in every local church family would be so convicted and try to obey and live out this truth. But what would happen? In a local church where commitment to God and to the brethren is low, this is what it would look like. A person, a Christian, would approach another brother. And what would, what would happen? The brother would say, how dare you say that to me? You have no right. And the person would leave the church because he will not submit to the church discipline or to the discipline of the Word. And what will happen? He'll, he'll, he'll go and find sympathizers out there and say, you know what? You know what this church did to me? They, they removed me from leadership. You know what this church did to me? Oh, they... they they said all these things about me. They, they did not accept me for who I am. They did not love me. They, we're all sinners here. They're all hypocrites. They're, they're doing all these things, right? And what would happen? The, the poor mistreatment would be highlighted. And what would be cut off from the picture is God. God would be cut out from the picture that God had nothing to do with it. God had nothing to do with what happened. Because all he sees is all these people did this to me. They should not have done it. And, and somehow, this person would not accept the reminder, would not accept the, the rebuke from God's Word and would somehow forget and blind. And what happens? The person transfer to another local church. And the person's sin there would ravage that church. That's going on, not, not just here, but all over the world. But so we go back. We go back, and you know, in Matthew 18, verse 18 to 20, what does this tell us? Do you know that here, Jesus, in Jesus' sermon here, He tells you and me, He tells every brother and sister, every Christian in a local church, commit, you know why? Commit to do this all the way, you know why? Because God is involved every time when a church family disciplines another. He's involved. You can't cut God out of the picture. You, no matter your reason why it was not done properly, it was not done in the best way, it was done in a horrible way, it doesn't matter. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign even in church discipline. He is involved. He is the one who said this would happen. And this is part of Him looking for you if you are His sheep. If you cut God out of the picture during the times that you are disciplined, you are not listening to Him. You are, not, you are taking His discipline lightly. You are taking Him lightly. Listen to God, Hebrews tell you, as long as it is called today. Don't condemn and feel and judge your brother or sister because God will do terrible things to you. He has warned you about that. 
in this same chapter as well. Matthew 18, 18, I'll show you why I say God is sovereign in church discipline. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You know why this is part of the sermon here? Where did you hear this before? When Jesus told this specifically to Peter, when Peter said, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are God. You are the Savior. You are Lord. And Jesus says, I give you the keys. Whatever you bind and whatever you loose. And I explained that to you. I'll explain it to you again. It doesn't mean that we are the ones setting the pace here. It doesn't mean that what I declare here in this earth, will, uh, heaven will declare. No, what I'm declaring here is what heaven has already declared. God is in the lead here. God is the one in, uh, setting this here. And the church is following the will of God. That's the reason. And you now here see that it's not addressed to Peter only. It's not an authority only for Peter. You see in 18, it is now plural. This is for every Christian. Whatever you bind, church, Local church, whatever you bind here on earth has been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose here in heaven and earth has been loosed in heaven. Therefore, when you say to a person who has refused again and again to repent from his sin that he is an unbeliever, heaven agrees with you already. And you have said that already, has declared that already in the Word of God, and you have just executed that here on earth. God is the one who has set this in the person's life. God is involved in every discipline, every discipline of His children. Too many people, too many people think that it is unloving to confront sin in the family, to confront sin to a fellow brother, to a fellow sister. And they would say, how dare you focus on my sin when I've done so many good things? Too many people think it's the unloving thing to do. And they fail to see that well, that was the most loving thing a brother or a sister could have done. For at great risk of friendship, at great risk to a loss, they have gone to you and said, you are sinning, you are in the wrong. This is what the will of God says. Verse 19 will show you, and verse 18, 19, 20 is just a repetition of this point. Verse 19 says, again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth, imagine that, two, three witnesses will, will agree that you are sinning. The whole local church agrees that you are sinning. And you would still say, no I'm not. What does Jesus say to you? Jesus overrules you and say, that's not just a person saying that to you. That's the whole authority of God saying that to you. And if you don't listen, you are in danger. You are in danger. You can't use this verse to say in a prayer meeting, oh, two or three of us here are gathered then, then, then God is here. No, because God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's there with you when you are alone praying. That's not the context of this verse. The context of this verse is church discipline. That when the whole church, when two or three even has said and agreed in harmony to the God and His will, that this is sin. 
That is what heaven and God's will has declared as well. They are in total agreement with the Father. That's what it means. In verse 20, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. 19 and 20. That's the same. God is sovereign in church discipline. Therefore, let God be our hope every time we fully commit to church discipline, even when it is now at its ultimate measures to cast out the brother and say, I'm sorry, you're not a, you're not a believer. You're not, you're not who you say you are. You cannot have communion with us. We cannot fellowship with you. But we will try to win you. We'll share the gospel with you. We'll pray for you. And in the hope that you would repent, we will welcome you with open arms. That's what we hope for, that God would work in that person's life, even when it is now at a great loss for us. That's our aim as a church. Who do we listen to? Do we listen to our fears? Do we conveniently forget? Do we follow the ways of the world, trying to circumvent things, or we fully commit to listening to our great shepherd? Do we trust that his, in His parable of looking for that single lost sheep, that even here and when we do the discipline all the way, this is still part of that. It can be heartbreaking. In, in, for us, I know our hearts have been broken again and again in this issue. Many that we count, once counted as comrades and brothers and sisters here have gone because they could not bear to be told that they were in sin and living in sin. And there are still some here who are. I invite us as a church to trust God, obey God, and love the brother and sisters that we would be the ones to go without having been convinced, without having to say others would do it. Let's go. Let's love, let's commit, and trust in God. So in our commitment to discipline in the family, let love be our motivation. Let restoration be our goal, and let God be our hope. May the Lord bless you with His word.